Please open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5. I thank you, Dr. Swain, for the beautiful music. Thank you, Dr. Allen, for the invitation to preach. It's such an honor. Proverbs chapter 5, I'm reading from the New American Standard. We'll be reading the entire chapter. And the Word of God says this. My son, give attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may observe discretion, and your lips may reserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps take hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life, her ways are unstable, she does not know it. Now then, my sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. And do not go near the door of her house, or you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one, and strangers will be filled with your strength, and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien. And you groan in your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed, and you say, how I hated instruction, and my heart spurned reproof. I have not listened to the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to my instructors." I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and the congregation. Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your streams be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. Why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked, and he will be held with cords of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. Thus says the word of God. Proverbs 5, what a passage. I grew up in Dallas, Georgia. And as a boy, my family and I attended New Canaan Baptist Church. And I have so many wonderful memories of New Canaan Baptist Church. We sang a lot of Southern gospel out of the Stamps-Baxter hymnal. Uh, I miss hearing men sing bass in church, and that's a very fond memory. I remember hearing just a little talk with Jesus and all the men singing bass, and I have wonderfully fond memories and many, many fine people there. I loved our pastor when I was a boy. I looked up to the pastor, and I thought he hung the moon and stars. When I was 10 years old, I remember very clearly at a vacation Bible school, the pastor gave an invitation for us to trust Christ as our Savior. And in 1978 at Vacation Bible School, I believed on Jesus Christ for salvation. I was born again. A couple of weeks after that, the pastor came to my home to visit me, and mom and the family had prepared lunch for him. And he talked to me about baptism and was getting me ready. And I thought, wow, the pastor came to my home to visit me. Stuck in my mind. He did have a legalistic streak. I remember in uh, 1981, I was 13 years old, there was a television program called uh, the Barbara Mandrell Show. It was an entertainment variety show with a famous country music singer at the time, Barbara Mandrell, with her two sisters. Fabulously gifted country music family. And uh, my parents loved that program. They would watch it on Saturday night. I remember one Sunday morning, our pastor was preaching, and out of nowhere he said, and I'll tell you one more thing. Some of you people listen to Barbara Mandrell on Saturday night before you come to church. It's ungodly. Shouldn't do that. And 13-year-old Alan was in the back. Living for Jesus. Do not watch Barbara Mandrell show. I got it. 
the next Saturday night, the next Saturday night, uh, we sat down on the couch, and this will mean nothing to the younger people. Some of the older people will appreciate this. After the Lawrence Welk show went off, my parents turned on the Barbara Mandrell show. And my, I'm so vivid. We're in this old farmhouse we lived in, and my mom was eating a, a bowl of popcorn on the couch next to me, and Dad was sitting on the other side of her, and they're watching the Barbara Mandrell show, and I was thinking, live for Jesus, don't watch Barbara Mandrell. Live for Jesus, don't watch Barbara Mandrell. What do I do? And finally, I said, Daddy, Daddy, the pastor said we're not supposed to watch the Barbara Mandrell show. And my dad said, son, shut up. The preacher ain't here. And uh, <laughs> I learned a lot about being a Baptist that night. There's a lot that goes on when the preacher ain't there. When I was 15, my father felt led to move the family to another church in the community down the road, Poplar Springs Baptist Church. It was a few years after that that um, some of my father's concerns actually were validated. The pastor was having an affair with his secretary. Secretary leaves his husband, or leaves her husband. Pastor left his wife. They had an affair, divorced their respective spouses, and got married to each other. So what I'm telling you is the pastor who led me to Christ and baptized me left the ministry because of an affair. When Lisa and I were young and, and we got married when we were 20 years old, we, we really wanted to go for the Lord. We wanted to live for Jesus Christ. And we went to Bible conferences and concerts, and we thought for sure these these to use a slang term, these rock star preachers and these rock star musicians for Christ are all somehow hold the secret to victory in Jesus and to living for Jesus Christ. And I, I remember going to hear a comedian some of you have never heard of, but back in the day would pack in thousands of people, Christian comedian named Mike Warnke, claimed to have been uh, involved in Satanism, claimed to have been a Vietnam vet, got, supposedly got saved, all of that. And we discovered that he made the whole story up. It was all a lie and that he had been through four different marriages. Uh, we read Hal Lindsey's work, and we're getting ready for the trumpet sound, and Christ is coming back, and only to discover that uh, he's now on his uh, third marriage. And we had other disappointments, too numerous to name. I remember going to hear a particular preacher who's still around today, that hearing his oratory, at Ro he, was feeling, he was preaching at a Bible conference at Roswell Street Baptist Church, and his oratory and his power was so dynamic, and he was come from another state, and I'd never heard people preach like that, and then he left his wife for a, another woman. Uh, we remember being challenged to evangelism by an evangelist named Arthur Blessed, who was famous for carrying the cross all around the world, and our we wept and went to the altar and repented for not being evangelistic in an Arthur Blessed sermon, only to find in 1990 he left his wife and six children to marry a woman about 20 years younger than him. And I have list after list after list after list, and I could go on. But what I can tell you is, it is discouraging and it is disheartening. My youngest daughter has a friend who came to faith in Christ in New York City a couple of years ago at the Hillsong Church in New York City. She came to faith in Christ there. And you know the story about the pastor recently discovered he's having this adulterous affair. And I know they are not our tribe, if you will. But this young lady came to genuine faith in Jesus Christ. She's my daughter's friend. And right now there's a young woman in Kansas City trying to process the Christ that she embraced as opposed to the poor stewardship of the person who introduced her to Christ. And I don't ever want to put a young woman in that position or a young man in that position that they have to separate the message I preached from something stupid that I did. 
And this passage of Scripture is a warning for all of us. It's Proverbs chapter 5. It is the danger of adultery. I'm going to give a brief exposition of the text. I'm going to give you some practical points for application, for victory in this area, and then we're going to close with a word of personal testimony from uh, our life. So a brief exposition of the text. Here it is. First of all, adultery is a seductive temptation. Find this in verses 1 through 6. It is a seductive temptation. None of us are above it. Several years back, I was working with some young Christians who were making some very imprudent choices and setting themselves up for failure. And I challenged them on this and about some choices they were making in their life that were setting themselves up for sexual temptation. And I will never forget a young lady looked at me and she said, but Dr. Branch, I thought by this point in our life, we'd be beyond all that. And I said, "Uh, listen, I've been married for years now. I'm not beyond all that. Never, none of us ever get beyond all that. As long as you have a heartbeat, you are not beyond all that. There is a well, uh, well-known principle of Christian living that's been often repeated, and it's this. An unguarded strength is a double weakness. And if we ever get to the point where we think we are beyond temptation in this area in our life, that's when we are at the most danger. It's a seductive temptation. Several things it says. First of all, uh, there are... Uh, the description of the adulterous person. Notice what it says. And this is written from a son to a father. It's applicable to all Christians, male or female. Notice what it says, the description. It says, for the lips of an adulteress, verse 3, drip honey. That word adulteress, the King James actually gets it right. It uh, calls her a strange woman. When it says strange woman, it doesn't mean she has three eyes or four ears or something. It's the word zara. She's a stranger. That word zarah, uh, verse 3 here, is also used in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1, that says uh, Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire before the Lord. It's a very negative term. And so this is a, someone who is a stranger. And the idea is not, again, that she has something bizarre about her appearance or that even she's ethnically foreign to Israel, but she is a stranger, this seductive person, is a stranger to God's standards. There's no bedrock. There's no right and wrong. There's no morals in in this person's life. They are a stranger to God's word and God's commands. And it's the description. But then there are the disarming words. It's interesting, the passage, this father writing to his son, never talks about the physical appearance of this alluring person, but he spends a lot of time talking about what this person says. It's interesting. Look at verse 3. It says, For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil are her speech. It starts with flattery. Most affairs don't just start with some sort of physical attraction. Most affairs, especially for pastors, start with some sort of flattery. Now, flattery is a danger for all of us at any level in life. I'm reminded of what Adrian Rogers said. Adrian Rogers said, Flattery is a lot like perfume. It's okay to sniff it, but you better not drink it. And that's what we have right here, this flattery, these alluring words. Oh, I tell you what, I, I, when you were younger, I bet you just had all sorts of people chasing you. Oh, someone like you, you just deserve the best. Oh, I wish I was married to someone like you. I wish I could spend more time. Oh, have you ever thought about bending the rules just a little bit? They're disarming words. It starts with flattery. But ultimately, these words are not only disarming, they're deceptive. Look at verses 3 and 4. Lips of an adulteress drip honey, smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end, they're bitter as wormwood. It's deception. All this purported pleasure you're going to get is deceptive. This wormwood, the contrast, honey, sweet, wormwood, bitter, it never, never ends well. And then finally, not only are they 
Deceptive word, disarming words and their deceptive words, they are deadly words. Notice what it says. Her feet go down to death, verse 5. Her steps take hold of Sheol, that's the grave. It's deadly. Not only is it deadly, I will tell you this. For a preacher, adultery dishonors the name of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you why. Doctrinally, it preaches two messages. When a preacher commits adultery... It preaches two wrong doctrinal messages. First of all, that preacher is preaching idolatry. He stood in the pulpit claiming Jesus is the way, but by his actions, he's demonstrated, well, you know, Jesus wasn't really enough for me. I needed something else. It's idolatrous. Not only is it idolatrous, it teaches unfaithfulness. If anything else you learn about Jesus Christ, you can learn this. He is faithful. He is faithful. He was faithful every step up Calvary's hill. He was faithful. He was completely obedient to the Father's will. He's faithful. And what do we teach about his faithfulness? Why do we teach eternal security? Among other reasons we teach it. Why? We are doubly secure. We are in his hand. He's in the hand of the Father. He's faithful. He's faithful. He's faithful. It's not that I'm holding on to him. He's holding on to me. But when a preacher commits adultery, He's teaching faithful unfaithfulness. Made a promise, stood in front of a church and made a promise to his wife, made a promise as a pastor to live above reproach, but now he's living and demonstrating unfaithfulness as opposed to faithfulness. It dishonors the name of Jesus Christ. It is a seductive temptation. None of us are above it. But not only is it a seductive temptation, it has serious consequences. Look at verses 7 and following. If you choose to engage in this sin, there will be serious and severe consequences. You will lose your wealth. Look at verse 10. Financially, you will suffer. And strangers will be filled with your strength, and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien. Let me just tell preachers, most of you are not good at much else besides preaching. And if you commit adultery, you're going to lose your job. You're going to go broke. You will suffer financially. Not only will you suffer financially, you're going to suffer physically. Notice what it says, uh, this description of physical suffering. He says, the flesh in my body that I've suffered, in verse 11, your flesh and body are consumed. You'll suffer physically. I'm going to mention a topic that needs to be said. I just read data from the Centers of Disease Control. The most recent data on sexually transmitted infections in the United States from 2018, one in five Americans with an STI, 68 million in total. Let me tell you what, you break God's rules, you will suffer physically. You'll suffer financially, you'll suffer physically, you'll suffer loss of reputation. Look what it says down here at the end of this little section uh, in verse 12 and 14. He says, I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and the congregation. Everybody's going to know. You can do all your management and try to control your sin and do a little sin containment. Sooner or later, everyone is going to find out. It will not stay secret. Even after you die, if you think you've died and you've kept a lid on it, after you die, the word will get out. You'll suffer, and finally, you'll suffer loss of ministry. You'll lose your job as a pastor, and you should. You say, well, I, what, about, what about restoration? Listen, restoration to fellowship and restoration to leadership are two different things. We are commanded to restore people to fellowship, but we are never commanded in the Bible to restore an immoral preacher back to the pulpit. 
You say, well, why is that such a big deal? I'll tell you why. Because sexual contact between a pastor and a church member is almost always exploitive and abusive because you are operating from a position of authority and power and the person receiving those advances feels a level of pressure, even subtly. You say, well, it's all consensual, even subtly, because, well, after all, I know what the Bible says, but the preacher says this is okay, and it's always exploitive, and it's always evil, and it's always wrong. You will suffer severe consequences. But this passage, God doesn't just tell us the bad news. He gives us the good news. There is a supreme satisfaction. He gives the antidote. In verses 15 through 19, this is a happy part of the passage. And the supreme satisfaction is being faithful and investing in your marriage and in your spouse. Look at the terminology in uh, verses 15 and following. Drink water from your own cistern, fresh water from your own well. Living here in the Midwest where we have abundant water in Missouri, it, it may be hard for us to understand how valuable water was there in the ancient Middle East, but the wife is being described here as a valuable treasured resource, that this is something that you want to love and adore. It's, it's like a sister, your own sister in fresh water that always refreshes. There's never any guilt associated with that. And notice what else it says. The language is very vivid. He says, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. In verse 18, the idea is the woman you married when you were young is still the woman you are married to when you're older. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. And then the language gets even more vivid. Look at the end of verse 19. It says, uh, the NASB says, be exhilarated always with her love. Well, that's not a wrong translation. It's just not as vivid as it should be. The verb there is shagah. By the way, Proverbs 5.19 is one of the top 10 verses in the Bible, never to be sold on the shelf at a Hobby Lobby to hang on the wall in your home. But uh, maybe should be. But the verb is shagah. The verb is shagah. It's a version of it. And the verb means to stagger. To stagger. And it is used in other contexts to refer to intoxication as being inebriated. And it says a better translation is always be intoxicated with her love. That there should be this sense that, I, man, I am investing and I've poured my life into this relationship and I am intoxicated with the woman to whom I'm married. Do you remember when you first met your spouse? I want to mention something I mentioned in a sermon several years ago here in chapel, but every Baptist preacher need to listen, needs to listen to me. You students today, you don't know this, but when Dr. Allen came here, they had photos of every graduating class from Midwestern Seminary lining the halls in the classroom building. You remember this? Some of you remember. Every, every graduating class. And I would walk down the hallway, and I would stare at those graduate and these preachers staring down at me. And I would look at them, and I stared at them. And I came to a conclusion staring at all those photographs of all those graduating classes at Midwestern Seminary. You ready? As a people group. Baptist preachers are the ugliest people on the face of planet Earth. That's what I concluded. Just ugly. I mean, my words. They all look like they're models for a far side comic strip staring down at you. And uh, I, who? And But then I go to these Bible conferences and conventions, and I see these lovely, sophisticated, bright women married to these ugly men. Listen, every Baptist preacher needs to fall on his knees and thank God for his wife. Do you remember when you met? I remember when I met my wife. I haven't gotten over it. Lisa and I didn't meet on Facebook. We didn't have social media back then. We did not meet on Christian Mingle or eHarmony. I met my wife the old-fashioned way. 
I was on a date with another girl. That's how I met my wife. I asked her for her phone number while I was out with another girl. She said, Alan Branch, it's in the phone book. You can look it up. And I did, and here we are. Um, Man, you don't need to, don't ever get over that. Invest in your spouse. Uh, Don't stop dating each other. When I was a pastor in North Carolina, we didn't make much money. We were poor. Some people say I was a poor preacher. Well, I'm a poor preacher at many different levels, but I was financially poor at that time. But we would still, in in Raleigh, they had the North Carolina Museum of Art, and it was free. Thank God. There was someplace free. And so Lisa and I would put on our best clothes, and we would get a babysitter, and we would go to the North Carolina Museum of Art. Why? We're still dating each other. We don't have any money, but we've got each other, and we're still... Don't stop dating each other. I go out with Lisa, and we leave our cell phone. She'll put it in her purse, and I put mine in the car, and we talk to each other. I look around the restaurant, and there's these couples. They're staring at their cell phone, looking at... They're not looking at each other. There's nobody on that cell phone more important than your spouse. Don't stop. It is a supreme satisfaction. Always be intoxicated with her love. Shaga. What a beautiful picture. Well, there is a supreme satisfaction, but then it ends with a stern warning. Ends with a stern warning. Verses 20 and following to the end of the passage. Notice what it says. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated? Interesting. He uses the same Verb shagah in verse 20. He used it in a positive way in verse 19, always be intoxicated with your wife, shagah. But then here in verse 20, he says, Why should you, my son, be exhilarated? It's another version of the word shagah, shagah with an adulteress. It's wordplay. He said, Be exhilarated with your wife, not with someone else. And then it says in verse 21, For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord. That is referring to God's omniscience. God knows he'll always know. You will not hide it from God. He's omniscient. But not only does he talk about the omniscience, he talks about the obvious consequences. Look at verse 23. This young man will die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. One of my favorite Old Testament commentators is a guy named Alan Ross, taught at Beeson. He commented on Proverbs 5.23. Listen to what he said. In other words, if the young man is not captivated by his wife, but becomes captivated by a a stranger in sinful acts, then his own iniquities will captivate him and he will be led to ruin. Let me point out something to you. That verb shagah pops up again in verse 23. That little language down there, he will go astray. That's another version of the, the, the verb shagah. Here's the idea. Verse 19, you will either shagah, stagger in the intoxication and the joy and the satisfaction the marriage God has given you, or you will shagah, you will stagger to your own destruction. It is a stern warning. Well, the question is, this is what the Bible says. How do we, we need to have some warning signs in our life so that we are self-consciously aware if we are in danger of succumbing to this temptation. I have a long list that I have compiled over the years of warning signs about adultery. I've tried to condense them into a little acrostic. I hope that you won't think it's too simplistic. I mean it with all sincerity. It is the word dangers. So I've taken about 18 or 19 warning signs, and I've condensed them into a little acrostic. You ready? The D stands for your devotional life. I've dealt with so many preachers that have fallen out of ministry because they've gotten into affairs. It's to the point now, when you deal with guys like that, you stop asking, did you stop having a devotional time? You just start asking, when did you stop having your devotional time? Because if you're not intimate with God, you're setting yourself up to be intimate with someone you shouldn't be. It's your devotional life. That's D. That's D. Then A is anger and bitterness. 
I came across some data from some Christian psychologists who were dealing with pastors that had uh, sinned, and they said one of the characteristics that kept coming to the top and coming to the top is these were people seething with anger and bitterness. Life had not worked out the way they thought it should, and their ministry hadn't worked out, and they felt like they were being exploited. And so this anger and bitterness, and they felt like they deserved the opportunity to do something. The A is anger and bitterness. If you have unresolved anger and bitterness, I remind you, Hebrews chapter 12 says, be careful that no root of bitterness grows up within you and so defiles many. It's anger and bitterness. And then the N stands for not talking and not communicating with your spouse. That you stop talking, you stop communicating with your spouse. You're going to communicate with someone, you need to make sure that it's her, gentlemen. Ladies, you need to make sure it's him. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I'm an interim pastor at a small country church, and they still have prayer request time in the service, which is a little dangerous. But this, a couple of weeks back, one lady said, well, I want a prayer request. This, this, this family are in quarantine because of COVID, and you know, that can get kind of hard when you quarantine with each other for 14 days. And I said in front of this whole little congregation, I said, hey, there's nobody I'd rather be quarantined with for 14 days than Lisa Branch. Amen. If Chick-fil-A could door dash us, some cookies and creams milkshake will survive. I'm telling you. But there's no one I'd rather be with than her. Uh, the thought of that quarantine, that's, that's actually attractive to me. Don't stop talking to your spouse. The N says, stands for you're not talking. And the G stands for you are giving too much information to someone you shouldn't. Most of these affairs don't start physically. They start, you get emotionally connected with someone before you ever, ever get physically connected. You're giving them too much information. You're talking with another woman with things you should only be talking about with your spouse, and you are giving too much information. You are giving too much time. The G stands for giving. The E stands for excuses and explanations. Listen, if you are having to explain your actions to your church on a constant basis, well, Pastor, why did we see you in that coffee shop with that lady that's not, you know, Miss Lisa? And why did we see you out running on, on that trail with that woman that's not your wife? And if you're having to explain your actions all the time, you're wrong. If you're always explaining, you're wrong. It's a warning sign. The R stands for rationalization. Rationalization. You start suggesting that the rules that apply to everyone else don't apply to you. And this happens especially with some of these guys where their ministry just takes off and they got thousands of people listening. And what they start saying is things like this. Well, the mere mortals all around me, they need those healthy parameters about sexual temptation in their life. But I'm so far above the rest of them. I'm up here on this plane in love. I don't, that's for the mere mortals down below me. But someone like me doesn't need that. Oh, what balderdash. Complete nonsense. You never get above God's standards. None of us are. Uh, I'm reminded when I see some of these megachurch guys that think they're so hot and they, they don't, um, you know, they're above. So many people are listening to me, I'm, I'm above God's standards. I'm reminded of a story about a Sicilian philosopher about 400 years before the time of Christ. His name was Empedocles. And Empedocles was quite a flamboyant character, and he set out, his goal was to die in such a way that people thought he was a god. So he said, one of the legends about his life is this, he's living on the island of Sicily, and so he, he, one legend says that he tried to throw himself, and 
did throw himself into Mount Etna, into the lava flows off of Mount Etna, so that his body would be consumed by the lava flows, and he would just disappear, and everyone think he just got zapped on up into the heavens somewhere with the gods, and they thought, oh, well, he just disappeared. He's a god. So apparently, Empedocles tried this, tried to jump into the lava flow, and, and his body was consumed. But when he jumped, he left behind one of his shoes, and it had a particular type of sole that everybody said, that's the type of shoe Empedocles wore. And when they found it, what they said, well, he tried to prove to us that he died a God, but we know he just died a human. And there's a lot of preachers that try to convince other people that they are gods, but all they keep doing is proving they are human, and they are human, and they are human. You are not above God's standards. You are not semi-divine. You are sinners saved by grace in daily need of the Holy Spirit, and you better stay dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't start rationalizing things. Heard about one preacher, one of these megachurch dudes. They did their ministry retreat on a beach in Portugal. One of the top 10 things you'll never hear a Baptist preacher say. Yeah, we did our ministry retreat in Portugal. No, they won't even pay for Chick-fil-A. Anyway, uh, it's, and he got it, this whole deal started when he's walking alone on a beach with another woman, not his wife. I have never walked alone on a beach with another woman not named Lisa. And then the S stands for social media dangers. Social media, you go fishing around on Facebook, Twitter, I wonder how this person I used to know, you're headed for trouble. Well, how do we avoid it? That's some practical advice. Those are warning signs. I don't have an acrostic for how to avoid it, but let me tell you a few things. Let me just give you a few ideas about how you can avoid this temptation. We've given the warning signs. How do you avoid it? First of all, you ready? One word, three letters, run. Some of you didn't write that down. Run. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee sexual immorality. The word flee there is in the present tense. It means we are always running. Put physical distance between you and the problem. You say, I don't understand what you're saying. Okay, put physical distance between you and the problem. If you and her are not in a room in a location alone together, it's not going to happen. But Dr. Branch, that might not solve the deeper problem. It might not solve the deeper problem. It has solved the immediate problem. Run! I mean, like, like Joseph getting out of Potiphar's house, put on your running shoes and run. And you're always running. You live your life characterized by running. I don't ride alone in cars with someone, a woman not named Lisa. I don't go out and eat lunch with other women, not my wife, by myself. There's times in staff meetings, you understand that when there's groups there. But you're always putting physical distance. You're always running. Second thing I would encourage you to remember is the dangers of counseling. I, I'm not a psychologist nor a psychiatrist, but let me tell you this. The, the, the mental health guys talk about a dynamic called transference. And so what happens is you get into a counseling situation and you start imagining the person whom you're counseling or the, the person receiving the counseling starts imagining the counselor as in, in, in having all the the traits and attributes and characteristics of the person that they wish their spouse was, and they start getting hooked up there. Here's a word of advice. If you start looking forward to a counseling session with someone of the opposite sex, you need to refer to someone else. So watch out for the dangers of counseling. I would also encourage you to watch your language. Baptist preachers don't flirt. Uh, every now and then I'll meet guys that say things something like, well, you know, I've always got people coming on to me and that sort of stuff. Okay, I am 53 years old. 
to quote the rock group Van Halen. I mean, I know I'm about to quote Van Halen in the pulpit. I, I know that I'm not the best looking guy in the world, but to quote Van Halen, I'm kind of semi-good looking, okay? That's a good description. So I'm not chopped liver, but listen very carefully. I am 53 years old. I have never had that problem. And if you think that people are always coming on to you, gentlemen, ladies, if you think people are always coming on to you, you need to start asking yourself what kind of signals you're putting out. Because listen, if you don't have any hooks in the water, you won't get any bites. You need to watch your language. Watch how you emote. There's so much more that I want to say. I'm going to close with one more, and I don't mean it to be overly simple. But um, remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. We get up and preach the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you really believe you're going to stand before him someday? I mean, do you really believe you're going to, do you really believe he was faithful to the cross? When I think of how much Jesus has had to forgive me of, and I think of the grace the Lord has shown me, I don't want to let him down. I'm asking you to think about Jesus. Can't you hear the ring of the nails? Can't you see the spear in the side? And can't you see them lay his body in the tomb? Don't you see him gloriously arrive? Do you hear the echo of the trumpet sound? He's coming back. I'm asking you to think about Jesus. And when I think about what the Lord Jesus has done for me, to throw away my testimony for him for something cheap and tawdry and vulgar, think about Jesus. Well, I told you I was going to end with a word of personal testimony, and I will, and I hope this encourages you. Lisa and I have prayed about this. We've shared this story uh, once before at a Baptist convention, and to my memory, I think this is the second time I've ever shared it in public, but we have talked about this, and this is a story from our life. It's true. Uh, one of the things I tell you is listen to your wife. You need to listen to your wife if you're going to overcome these things, and I'll explain why. As a pastor in North Carolina for eight years, is a wonderful ministry, uh, Turner Memorial Baptist Church. I have such very fond memories of so many people there. One night about 20 years ago, uh, about this time of year, Lisa said, I want to take you out to eat on our date tonight, which is a little odd. And um, so we went to a Sweet Tomatoes over in Cary, North Carolina. And I'll never forget what happened. We're at a Sweet Tomatoes in Cary, North Carolina. And Lisa reached across the table and she grabbed both my hands with both of her hands and she said, I need to talk to you about something, but before I do, I want you to know, I know you didn't cause this problem. I said, okay. And her exact words were, there's a woman in the church who has eyes for you. And I remember something I heard, don't freak out, I heard it at a promise keepers meeting, but this guy said, you need to listen to your wife. And so the Holy Spirit's like, listen to your wife. And so I'm listening to my wife. And she started telling me what she heard and what she'd seen and I determined she was right. And so we came up with a game plan right there that there was nothing going to happen with this. And it, I wasn't going to do anything to feed this. And we we're going to put barriers and parameters. And we came up with all sorts of emergency plans. And uh, we came up with code words when there was an emergency and this person was around. And well, about a month later, I was getting ready for evangelism explosion outreach. And I, I was getting all my packets together so the teams could go out. And this person showed up at the church when I was there by myself. I'm getting ready for evangelism outreach. So I called Lisa, and I gave her the emergency code word. I know this sounds silly, but that's what we did. I gave her the emergency code, and like two minutes, she showed up. And I'll never forget, I walked outside the church building to wait for her, and Lisa showed up, 
And I'll never forget because my wife uh, is a sophisticated dresser, but she showed up with her hair in a ball cap and she had on flip-flops and running shorts and she had our daughter Annabeth with no shirt on and a diaper hung on her hip. And I was reminded of a, a line from a Gretchen Wilson song, I'll stand barefooted in my own front yard with a baby on my hip. Anyway, I was and she was standing there with this baby with Annabeth, and this person walked out of the church, and Lisa and I are standing together, and my wife glared at her. She didn't say a word, she glared at her. And the lady looked at us, and at that moment, she knew that we knew, and there wasn't anything going to happen. And in about two months later, she left the church, and we hadn't seen her in 20 years. I'm going to tell you something. When I was a young man, man, God saved me. Boy, I made some choices, and I, I lived far away from the Lord. And when I married Lisa, I wanted to go God's way. And there was a little chorus that was popular at that time in the late 80s. And it really just kind of grabbed us in the early 90s. And I, I would sing it to myself all the time, and I still sing it today. Because I want to finish strong for Jesus, and I want you to, too, and I want you to know it can be done in the name of Jesus Christ. You don't have to be one of those stories people talk about. You can live victoriously, but it takes planning and discipline and a walk with the Lord that's deep and intimate and strong. And that little chorus summarizes so much of my heart at that time and what I wanted to happen in my marriage. You might know it. If you don't, it's real simple. Lord, prepare me. To be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true, with thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary for you. Do you know that? Sing it with me. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy. Try and try.